I will say this, the hardest thing about being in a large law firm or any large organization is keeping your edge, stay, you know, staying hungry. Hello, and welcome to The Unconventional Path, Secrets to Igniting Your Business with Bela and Mike. I'm Bela Musitz, the David D. Ray Professor of Innovation and Entrepreneurship at Clarkson University in upstate New York. And I'm Mike Wasserman, Professor of International Management at the University of Applied Sciences in Münster, Germany. Join Mike and I on a journey to explore how to build and grow your business in today's global marketplace. In each episode, we'll try to capture and share the essence of how interesting people often take unconventional paths to build their businesses, some of whom succeed, some who do not. We will delve into how they get their inspiration, drive, and persistence to start and grow their enterprise. You'll hear the ups and downs, the challenges, and the struggles firsthand. Business schools don't train entrepreneurs to find and explore unconventional paths. These paths, sometimes overgrown and rocky, can quickly become the roads to new products, processes, suppliers, customers, or employees. These roads can lead to competitive advantage, growth, and even happiness. Since there are no textbooks on how to do this, we are interviewing a wide range of business people, some successful and some less so. These business folks have found and taken unconventional paths to their business careers. We hope to capture some lessons, advice, and inspiration along the way that will help you attain your entrepreneurial goals. So please join us for interesting conversations and discussions with inspiring guests on how you can ignite your business by exploring some of the many less traveled, unconventional paths that lie ahead. If you like the podcast, please tell your friends and give us a positive review on iTunes. If you have suggestions or comments, please send us an email at bela.and.com. Mike at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Hello, Mike. How are you doing today? Great, Bela. How are you? Excellent. Hey, today we have a wonderful guest, uh, Rich Honan, who is the venture capital and technology practice team leader at Phillips Lytle, and he is also the leader of the Albany, New York office for Phillips Lytle. Phillips Lytle is a large regional law firm here in the United States. And you might ask, well, Jeepers, a lawyer? Uh, How can they be entrepreneurial? Well, I think once you listen to this podcast and the interview with Rich, you'll really understand how he's very entrepreneurial and uh, many lawyers are. So, but before we dive into that, Mike, uh, you've been there now in Germany for uh, almost a year at Munster. And uh, so how's that experience going? Uh, What are some comparisons to uh, your 15 years in upstate New York, a small little town in upstate New York called Potsdam when you were in Clarkson versus where you are now? The differences are amazing on a daily basis, Bela, and we could fill, I don't know, probably seven of these podcasts with all the amazingly interesting things that I've learned and the hilarious Um, to other people experiences that I've had as I've stumbled and bumbled my way through adapting to German culture. But it's been interesting. I'm getting ready to teach an entrepreneurship class. And I've found the differences in the entrepreneurial cultures 
are very different between Germany and the U.S. I think the young people, the students, amazingly hungry. They have all these amazing ideas, all this energy, just like in uh, at Clarkson, where you teach and where I used to teach, uh, always students coming up with wanting you to look at their business plans and look at their pitches and couldn't go to the men's room without uh, getting pitched in the in the on my way to the toilets. All these things are still here, so are, are also here in Germany. There's a lot of young people that have amazingly great ideas. Digitalization is big here, so there's a lot of students interested in transforming business models, uh, something that we'll talk about in this podcast and we've talked about in other podcasts. But it's interesting. The infrastructure isn't quite as set up as it is in the U.S. right now. Maybe it looks like it did 15, 20 years ago in terms of clear network of angel investors, companies with internal venture funds, VCs. Um, there's some of this to an extent in Berlin, a little less in Munich. The German culture is a little less risk-taking than the U.S. Um, there's a little less emphasis on the individual and more on the, the team or the organization. So you rarely get people that say, I've got an idea that's going to change the world. A German, and I don't want to stereotype, but Germans might say, oh, I have this small idea. Maybe it's okay. What do you think? Is it at all feasible? There's a lot of humility, I think, and a lack of social appreciation for kind of showboating and saying, yeah, I have this next best, I'm going to be the next Facebook. You just don't see that as much culturally. So so there's a, a gap here between, I think, a lot of ideas and then getting those ideas implemented or executed. So that's kind of the main differences that I see so far, nine months in. Maybe I'll change my mind. I'm sure I will. I'll learn from people as, as we go. But uh, but it's certainly been interesting and I'll uh, I'll try to think of some good examples along the way to share with you that don't embarrass myself or other people. Yeah, that's great, Mike. You know, it, it got me to thinking about how here in the United States, over the last 20 years, we have set up an unbelievable infrastructure uh, that if you're interested in starting a new business and you raise your hand, I think almost no matter where you are in the United States, there will be either a uh, economic development organization or a law firm or someone that has expertise in that area and can help you get started. I mean, look at our guest today, Rich Honan, right? He is the venture capital and technology practice team leader. So what does that tell you? There's a, there's a lawyer and actually a team uh, within Philips Lytle that focuses on venture-backed businesses and understanding the agreements and the ins and outs of, of venture capital financing and technology businesses. So that's a real subspecialty in law. And even in a relatively small market like Albany, New York, uh, we have that. So I think that's a great advantage here uh, because with that infrastructure, what it does is it enables you as a, a new entrepreneur, uh, it makes it easier for you to start a business. You can go to experts who can help you with all the various different facets of getting that business launched and give you guidance along the way as well. So I think we're really fortunate. Yeah, we're really fortunate there. Agreed. It's an ecosystem. And it's something that you see in a big way in Silicon Valley uh, or in Boston. But yeah, you see it in lots of small cities all over the country. Uh, and that is lacking here. But it's that ecosystem that's critical. I know when I started a business in, in Portland, Maine, of all places, a small city, there was a really nice infrastructure there of lawyers and accountants and, and business development people within the government at the local school that were that all had something to offer. And I think I think, yeah, I think the interview with Rich is a great example of trying to find these people wherever you're at um, to try to help you kind of go down that road less traveled and to, to do something different and unique um, within your career. So not only is Rich a great role model as somebody who took some risks, 
um, but also what he does in terms of finding other people like him will be really useful for our listeners. Yeah, agreed 100%, Mike. So with that, uh, let's dive into uh, the interview with Rich. And before we do that, uh, first of all, thank you to uh, Clarkson University and to Munster for helping support this podcast. And again, if you like what you hear, please give us a nice positive review on iTunes or your favorite podcast system. And also, if you have any questions or comments, uh, we can be reached via email at bela.and.mike at gmail.com. Now, let's listen to the interview with Rich. So today, I'm here with Rich Honan, partner office leader at Phillips Lytle's office here in Albany. Welcome, Rich. Glad to be here. Well, thanks. So today, I just want to talk a little bit about entrepreneurship, because that's the theme of the podcast. And um, you're an attorney, and most people don't think of attorneys as being entrepreneurial. So we've known each other for a long time, and there's a clear entrepreneurial thread through the things that you do. So I wanted to explore that a little bit. That's sort of the, my goal here for, for this uh, podcast. So could we go back to like some part of the beginning? So tell us a little about yourself and your journey to becoming a, a lawyer. Well, I was uh, born in downstate New York, New York City area, and I came up to college here in upstate Albany, New York, which is uh, upstate New York. Uh, and I was graduating around the time of a pretty serious recession, and people without technical degrees were going to have to do some kind of further schooling to become marketable. My roommate and still best friend decided he was going to go to law school, and he wasn't a very great writer, so he asked me to write his law school essay. And while I was doing it, he said, why don't you write one for me? So I wrote one for each of us. We both got in. And I ended up going to law school here in Albany. He ended up dropping out after six weeks and went off to be, become a business person and make a million dollars a year. So that's how I ended up in law school. So law school was sort of almost a, okay, I'm done with my undergraduate degree. I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do. Or is it I couldn't find a job? I, I didn't think I was going to be able to find a job with you know an English or a communications degree. And like a lot of other people, I was always fascinated by the law, right? There is these things that lawyers seem to do in court, and they have to explain the rules of life to us, which yeah. is on one hand very infuriating. On the other hand, it's kind of fascinating. So I, like many people, I was always fascinated with that idea. I wanted to see if it was something I could do. Were your parents in the legal profession? No, no. My dad was a journalist. And uh, brothers, sisters? I have uh, two sisters and a brother. They're actually all in, in um, I guess I would call it journalism as well, uh, and, and IT. But there are lawyers in our extended family, but I was the first in, in, in my family. Okay, great. So most law firms, uh, you know, as I understand them, are really small to medium-sized businesses, right? Very much. Solo practice or maybe, you know, five, ten attorneys, maybe some are larger. So when you're in law school, do they offer you any courses in business and how to start a law firm, how to manage a law firm, what a partnership is all about? No, it almost seems like they avoid it. Uh, they have cor courses in lawyering. But that's more kind of the practical side of lawyering, how to actually write a memo, what to do when a partner asks you to do this, for example. But uh, while there's certainly courses in business law, nobody talks about how to finance a law practice, how to get money from clients, how to sign up retainer letters. Uh, and my understanding is they're doing it a little bit more now. Remember, I went to law school 30, 35 years ago. But uh, 
there's still no real concentrated course of study to show somebody how to become a lawyer in private practice. Okay. So you graduate from law school. Right. Then what's the next big decision? I graduated from law school, and one day I got a call. I was looking at doing a job down in New York City in a, in-house at a corporate legal department, uh, which was a pretty good gig back in those days. Uh, and so corporate legal department, meaning the legal department in a large corporation. Correct. Because they have their own internal lawyers. Right. Uh, and, and, it, and it would have been in Manhattan, and it, would, it paid a lot of money, and it, it was, uh, it was at, back in those days, it was a 40-hour-a-week gig, and so it, it, it was pretty neat. Uh, and then I got a call from somebody who said he had a friend who was starting a law firm on uh, August 1st, uh, and this is in July when we're all studying for the bar. And this person who was starting the law firm the, had just found out that his partner the, the person he was going to go out and start the firm with had decided, no, they were gonna, he was going to stay at their firm. The guy was stuck and was looking for somebody, spoke to my friend, and my friend said, try talking to Rich. I went and met with the guy, and I thought it seemed kind of interesting. And uh, I took my first job, making $18,000 a year. And uh, my first day practicing law was the first day of the firm. My first job was carrying the conference table off of the elevator with my boss, uh, and that's how I got started. Right. So was he older? Had been practicing for a while, he, or he had been he had been practicing with a, a large firm here in Albany, a large local firm here in Albany. Uh, he was, uh, I think, ten, eleven years older than me. So he wasn't he wasn't terribly old, uh, but he had a good book of business. He was a business lawyer, and he also had a good sense for how to run a business himself. So I got to see from the ground floor things like bringing clients through the door, getting them signed up, getting paid, uh, taking work, what work not to take. It also gave me a great deal of flexibility because while I was learning business law from him, there was also other things like litigation that he did not do that I was able to kind of learn and and we were able to provide that service for our clients. So this was a two-person law firm? In the beginning, it was, it was two people. I think his wife, uh, his wife was the receptionist, I think. Uh-huh. Or we might, have, we might have had one other support person. And then a few years later, uh, some other people joined. Uh, and then I became a partner four years after I joined. And then five years after that, I bought the place from him. And, so, and then I ran it for 11 years after yeah. that. So what does becoming a partner mean in sort of... It means different things in different firms, and especially in smaller firms, it could have a very fluid meaning. Sometimes it, you are a partner in name, which helps you in the community uh, and helps you get business, but you're not necessarily a partner in terms of division of profits and, and business. Uh, in my case, uh, I, was, I was a full partner. I certainly was not at the percentage uh, of of the senior partner, which was fine. It so one sense. of the things the partner means is you get to share in the profits. Correct, correct. And uh, although the way most partnerships work is, you know, there's a draw, and then hopefully there's money to divide above that draw, right? And 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 you you share that, and that's that's kind of how it worked. But what it really allowed me to do was to understand almost from the first days I was practicing law. Just how the business of law works, how to actually, how much things cost, what people are willing to pay for, what clients really need. So it was really invaluable. Which probably if you're in a corporate law firm or even a larger law firm, you probably don't get that insight. Correct, because by design, the lawyers, the young lawyers that a firm like like we hire. So now uh, I'm part of a firm that has you know almost 200 lawyers. We have 
seven or eight offices, uh, probably have 400 total employees. We hire you know, the best people from the best law schools, and we pay them a lot of money. Uh, and we want them in some ways to be divorced from the business of the firm, right? We want them to be learning their craft and to be servicing clients. You want them to be kind of specialized because that's sort of the service you're selling in some extent, right? We have an expert in this type of litigation or this type of business law. Correct. Correct. And sometimes there's just large cases where you need to have lots of bodies on them. And uh, the timing of when you need people is very unpredictable. So you want people to be able to just be practicing law. The challenge then becomes as those people become older and start graduating into the partnership ranks, how have you educated them on the idea that our firm is a business and we need to make money and uh, we need to bring in clients and we need to make sure they pay us? So you got that experience on day one. Yes. Right? And Turn, it was very helpful. the table into the elevator and, <laughs> right. and putting it into the, into the office and saying, okay, now what? Right. Uh, and um, I learned a lot, obviously, through that. And then after I, I bought the firm... Then I was able to do what lots of people want to do. I was able to put in place some of my own ideas on, on maybe how to run a, a law firm a little bit more like a traditional business and less like a group of professionals. And um, that coincided nicely with the growing interest that we had in startup companies and venture capital, which at that time in upstate New York was, as you know, was just starting to, to kind of catch on. And so as my business was growing, I was dealing with people who were also grow, forming and growing businesses. So it, was, it, it dovetailed really nicely uh, with what I was doing. So when you were in law school, did you ever think of having your own law firm? Or was it, no, nah, I'm going I'm to be a partner in a big firm or I'm going to work in corporate law? Yeah, I think I, when I went to law, first of all, when you go to law school, most people think of themselves as being in court. And it is really cool going to court. I will say that even now on those few occasions when, I'm, when things are going really badly and, or really well, however you want to put it, and I'm actually called into court, you really do feel the connection between you and the thousand years, you know, of, of common law that have you know, sprung up since old time England. You know, you really feel connected to all those advocates. Uh, and I think everybody who goes to law school thinks of themselves in court. I took a business law class and became very interested in just the ins and outs of business law. I love the lingo. I love I love that. Um, but I don't think at that time I thought that I would run my firm. I thought, like most people, I this stuff seemed so hard. It seemed impossibly complicated. And it seemed like I would just need to spend years and years learning all of it, which is what I did for the first couple of years. So you buy the law firm from your partner, right? right. You buy them out. So now it's your law firm. Mm-hmm. So what was going on? I, I, I had another partner, me, me and another partner. Oh, so bought two him. people bought Yes. yes. Okay. So, so, um, so what, was, what was sort of that experience like emotionally? Well, emotionally, emotionally, it was, remember, for, in my situation, I was buying out my mentor, okay? So there was a little bit of that uh, going on. And like most negotiations, you know, it got a little tense, you know, um, he wanted more, I wanted to pay less, you know, it all makes sense. So there was that going on, but the, and, but I always thought it was really exciting and I thought it was really cool, but I do remember at the day he moved all of his furniture out, and he moved on to a big law firm where he's been quite successful, so kind of a win-win. And I looked around, and we had one file cabinet full of files, and I knew enough to know that my entire business is in that one file cabinet, and the other five file cabinets have just walked out the door, and I need to just 
fill file cabinets, uh, and that's how that's how we will grow this business. Right. Uh, so, but like everything else, you know, uh, desperation helps a little bit. I think we stayed very true to not taking cases just because they would bring in some money. We stayed very true to doing things that were within our wheelhouse, uh, and and I think that was that was a lesson I had learned early on, and I was able to put that to use. And you had that. Uh, eventually, you end up merging or being bought mm-hmm. by Phillips Lytle. But before we get to that, yep. you had your own law firm for with another partner for how many years? 11 years. Yeah. 11 years. And so what, what were your biggest challenges there? A uh, couple of things. First, we were carving out an area of practice that was not readily found in, here in upstate New York. And this was, you know, venture capital and startup companies. I was working with young people, uh, you know, close to my age. Um, and they had really good ideas and they were really smart, but they didn't have a lot of money. On the good side, there was a really fertile field for us to go play in, right? Because the big, what where I knew I could not compete was against the big law firms, where you know somebody the the person who started that law firm, you know, his grandfather played golf with the head of the bank, you know, a hundred years ago. That so I knew I couldn't compete on that level, but I could compete compete with the startup companies and with people who were you know fit my age and demographics. So that was one challenge. The other challenge was, uh, like most new managers, and I had been managing, I had been involved in managing the old law firm, you know, pretty pretty heavily. But, you know, I had a lot of new things I wanted to try. Things that, you know, sound really, really small, but to us were big things. Um, you know, one example is back then, this is, I guess, 1995. Lawyers were all using WordPerfect. Remember WordPerfect? Oh, yeah. You know, and it was great, right? Corel, WordPerfect, I think. And... Every law firm used WordPerfect. Every client just bought a computer that came loaded with Word. Okay? And you would have to change the documents into WordPerfect. It was the whole thing. And then one day I said, we're getting rid of WordPerfect. We're just going to do Word. You know, even though no other law firms, at least locally, were doing that. But all of our clients were doing it. And that was two months of people crying, uh, people you know, having to get used to new things, people getting really angry at me. Um, but, you know, little things like that where I was able to say, um, you know, we work for the clients and we should be speaking the same language on the same platform as that. Right. Now, part of your because this is when we met. Right. I was I, I was playing in the entrepreneurial space as well. And one of the challenge in having entrepreneurs as customers, so to speak, is most of them don't have cash. Right. Right. So you have to make money. You 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 got to earn a living in, in your business here. So if that represents a significant portion of your clientele, how does how, how do you think about that? How do you kind of manage that challenge of cash flow? Well, first, it can't represent a significant portion of your revenue at first. Um, I, I, I always say the, the VC stuff and the startup stuff that we did got a lot of ink, got a lot of publicity. Uh, you could tell I'm, I'm from a different generation when I call it ink, you know, as opposed to pixels. But um, it, it, it got us known around the, the community. But it was still, I still knew that I had to have the traditional legal work to keep the lights on. Um, you know, banking, regular corporate law, uh, litigation, all those kind of boring things. Uh, and, uh, and also allowed us to build up a stable of, of, of pretty good clients. Um, so we knew that we had to keep doing that. And then the question was, and this is the question that all law firms wrestle with, and I think most of them come down to the wrong answer. 
the question is, are you willing to reduce or maybe even eliminate your hourly rate to be able to work with a company you think several years hence might be a valuable company? And there's a lot of law firms, a lot of very large law firms that were unwilling to do that. They said, my rate's three fifty an hour, and if you can't pay the three fifty an hour, right? You know, and, and I'm more like, you know, we're the airline, right? We're, you know, I'm Southwest. If the plane takes off, you know, with two seats that are not filled and I charge a hundred bucks for those seats, that's a hundred bucks more per seat than I would have had. Yeah, I, I think of it, you're, you're more like a venture capitalist, right? You're, you're making an investment in a small company with the hope that they're going to get bigger. Right. And because of that relationship, they're going to remember you when you get bigger or they get bigger. And which is and luckily uh, that, you know, that's how it worked. But you're correct. You're, you're investing money, you're investing time. And some of those sales cycles were, you know, three to five years. Yeah, right. I'm, I'm talking where maybe I was charging a thousand dollars a year aggregate for a couple of years and then company hits and, you know, they do their 10 million dollar deal with Intel and, you know, and everybody's happy. Right. Right. So if I think about uh, summarizing so far, right, you go to law school, you join a startup. Right, <laughs> right. Right? And then, and then you buy the startup, uh, so you own all of it, or you and other partner, right? There's sort of a change in, in, in ownership of the right. startup. And then you grow that startup, and then you do a merger. Right. And, and, and in between, I bought out the, the remaining partner as well. So just before, before oh, okay. we did the merger, we bought out the remaining partner. And, and yes, when we merged. Um, so yes, and you know, I see where you're going. I, it allowed me to talk to my startups and all of my clients who want to do M&A deals and say, I've been through this. You know, I, I know what you're thinking. I know, you know that you have your eyes on kind of the next step. And uh, one, just based on my knowledge and experience, I could tell you some things. But also, based on my personal experience, I could tell you some things that work and some things that don't. Right. And I, in retrospect, you know, I've been with the new firm for 12 years now, and it's been great. Uh, but in retrospect, there's some of my own advice that I did not listen to, you know, at the time, and some that I did. Right. So t take me through the process of saying, you know what, I think it's better for the long-term viability, for what we're trying to accomplish, that we merge with a larger firm. There were three things going on. Uh, one, uh, and, and that's one real, th and maybe it, it's so funny as a lawyer to think of yourself as entrepreneurial, but one of the things that entrepreneurs have to do is just be brutally honest with themselves about the market and brutally honest about their place in the market. Uh, and I realized that I the startup and venture capital stuff was very cool, um, but that other people were already going to start getting into that space and they were going to have a lot more money than I did to spend on marketing and events and things like that. And also maybe actually investing in companies because that's something that law firms started to do. So I knew that I wasn't going to be the only game in town much longer. Uh, that was the first thing. The second thing was just because of the time, uh, a lot of firms wanted to be in upstate New York. A lot of firms wanted to be in Albany. A lot of large large firms without Albany presences. A lot of law firms. A lot of law firms, yes, uh, wanted wanted to be here, yeah, um, for a couple of reasons. One, obviously, the, the proximity to the state capital, but the other thing that had changed had been the, um, the burgeoning nanotechnology initiatives that were going on in Albany, uh, and people wanted to somehow get part of that. So a lot of firms came came knocking on their door. So a lot of big firms were looking for access. They were looking for 
partner or Correct. whatever. So Correct. timing was good. Yeah, the time. And I realized that this was going to happen, right? At some point, there was going to be four or five firms all doing what I did, or at least saying they were doing what I did, and they'd be able to say it louder and longer. So I, I knew that the time was coming to, I wouldn't call it a pivot, but the time was certainly coming to, to take cognizance of the changes in the market. Lar- yeah. Larger firms were going to be stronger. Yeah. So that's interesting because certainly uh, you you see sometimes people's devotion to wanting to have their own business cloud their judgment in understanding what's going on in the marketplace and understanding that, look, there's going to be consolidation. And of the five companies in this region that are in this sector, three of them are going to get acquired. The other two are going to go out of business. Right. 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 So which of which of those which of those two piles do you want to be in? Exactly. And it helped me being in Albany uh, for, for those listening. Albany is this town in upstate New York. It's you know 300 years old. It, it's a, you know, a very, it was settled by the Dutch, you know, it, you know, go, a long history. Some very, very old law firms in town, law firms that go back to the 1800s. Um, and I was cognizant that there were some firms that had been very strong 50 years ago or 30 years ago, but were had not realized maybe that time was passing them by. And I, I, it was easy to see that from my vantage point. And I didn't want to be one of those guys. They were still using WordPerfect. <laughs> exactly. Some of them may still be. Right. Yep. So what's how does life compare in a larger firm, right? Because this is, I think, something entrepreneurs struggle with. You know, should I sell? Should I not sell? So how does life in the larger firm compare to life when you're when you're driving the boat? Well, um, first, there's more administrative considerations, believe it or not, than than I had when I was running my own firm because I was able to make the rules and I was also able to to just cut out huge swaths of tasks. And I understand why it needs to be done. But for example, you know, if I take a client out to lunch, you know, I or if I if I'm going to sponsor something now. Um, yes, we have more money to do it with, but you know, there's a bunch of forms and approvals right. and things like that. In the old days, if somebody wanted to take somebody out to lunch, I just gave them the firm credit card and that was it. Right. Or you wanted to switch from WordPerfect to Word, you made the decision. Right. Correct. Now there would be a committee. It would take nine months right. of study and analysis before that decision right. gets so, made. But, that, but to be fair, I mean, I, I had to know that was coming, right? You know, it was a, it was a larger firm. Uh, so that obviously has changed. It's really nice. Um, I think the, the best things about any large organization are, you know, we have some really talented people. People talented in areas that I could not, first, I, I could not have found them. I couldn't have hired them. I couldn't have afforded them. And so that's, that's probably the best thing. Um, the hardest thing, I can't tell you that there's certainly, I think once a day, uh, there, I think I have, uh, and it used to be worse. It used to be several times a day. Now maybe it's once every couple of days. I feel like, wow, if I could only be the boss again for five minutes, you know, I could fix a lot of stuff. But I'm sure we all think that. Though I will say this: the hardest thing about being in a large law firm or any large organization is keeping your edge, stay, you know, staying hungry. You know, because in the old days, you know, I, I I won't say the number right now. I knew exactly what my biweekly payroll was, right? And I knew exactly how much money I had in the bank. And I knew exactly how much I had to bring in. Um, and, you know, I ran the firm for, I think, 12 years. I had 48 straight profitable quarters, right? Because I had to. Um, here, if I have a slow week, 
right? Or if I take a day off, God forbid, right? Someone's going to pick up that slack, right? And you have to not get too used, you, you have to become comfortable with that, but not get too used to it. So when you think about, uh, let's say, your own law firm, let's go back to that for a second. Mm-hmm. What was the culture there like? Overused word, yes, it was entrepreneurial. Uh, a couple of things. First, we hired people when they became available. So if, some, if a good person became available, and I saw them, and you know some of them, and my uh, fellow is now my partner, Jeff Schwartz. He was at a large New York City law firm, um, you know, stellar credentials. For whatever life reason, he decided to move to upstate New York. I saw his resume. I said, I'm, I'm hiring this guy. Met with him. You know, I'm hiring this guy. I think we ended up paying him pretty much the same thing as what my draw was, okay, that, you know, that first year. I didn't know exactly where I was going to use him, but I knew that if it was a draft, I was going to take the best player on the board, okay? So that was one thing that, you know, that, that we did all, all the time. So that, that was part of that culture. We would, you know, if we had an opportunity, we jumped on it. Had an opportunity to meet with a client, obviously we would jump on it. Um, the other part of the culture was, even though we were a small firm, was giving people the resources that they needed to do well. So if somebody said, Rich, I, you know, I need some gray hair, you know, to go out on this meeting with me, I would do that. If somebody said, Rich, I need to uh, spend a little money on a sponsorship to get close to this client. If somebody, in my case, I had clients that were in industries like fiber optics and telecommunications. We would spend, I would go to their um, their trade shows, mm. you know, and learn about, you know, just really immerse myself, you know, learn things, go to the seminars. I don't even go to the legal seminars now, right? But I, I would go and hear about fiber optics and, and you know, long haul transmissions and, you know, and, and spend a lot of money. So the culture was, you know, let's go out there and educate ourselves, get the best people and, 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 and put them in a position to, to do well. So a law firm, particularly when you first started, was you and your partner, other people kind of joined the firm, yep. right? You're building it. How does how does managing and leading that that type of organization work, right? Because there's real parallels from from that to a startup, right? There's two 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 co-founders, right? Right. They, they start adding. There's employee number three, four, five, and six. Right. Right. And and sort of how do you think about management and 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 leadership and organizing things? Well, when when you're smaller, uh, you can get you, you can get along with things based on the personal touch and charisma. I, I'm not saying I have that, but you. It, I mean, just being able to talk to people. And, and you could observe people and see how they're doing, right? Yeah, everyone's in the same room. Right, exactly. Um, so, I, and, and we all make the same management mistake. You know, when we first start managing, first we think, you know, we're going to fix everything right away. You know, and, you know, this person says, this is a problem. You're like, oh, I'm going to fix that, right? Um, then you get a little older and, and you realize, okay, you know, there's two sides to this and let's give it some time. And you learn when not to make a decision. The biggest difference the biggest change as you grow is learning how to manage based on inputs that are not directly from you. So the difference between managing this person who I work next to and managing this person or this unit that I know about from reports, right? So, oh, I'm looking at your numbers and, and things like that. And that that's a hard thing. I, I did not have to do that in my old firm, right? I could see everybody. Um, we certainly got to the point where I didn't know everything you know, every legal thing that was going on, but I could go and, and talk about it. Now, you know, I run the Albany office, but I also run our venture capital group and I, I work with associates and partners, you know, in, you know, in seven different offices. And so you have to get used to, you have to get comfortable with relying on other people 
to give you knowledge and then you making a decision based on that knowledge. Uh, I, I, that is something I think I learned at the old shop. So in the uh, in sort of the I'll use the word corporate world, um, the not the non law firms, mm -hmm. most mergers are failures, right? It's right around 50%. So right. maybe it's not most, but to about fit, half of them don't work out as expected, right? Either for whatever reasons, right? Uh, is that also true in law firms or is there, a, you guys have a hot, better batting average? Yeah, most law firm mergers are, are we have a higher percentage of, of mergers that work, okay? Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, first, the types of things that have been proven not to work in law firms are basically paying a lot of money, paying big bonuses to bring in some big rainmaker. Okay, a couple of firms have tried to do that as a business model, and it rarely works because we keep running into that whole cultural thing that everybody likes to talk about, but it actually means something. Um, so that has not worked well in the law firm context. Those have been the mergers, and those have been the law firm breakdowns that you read about, okay, where they say, all right, we're going to give this guy $5 million because he says he could bring in $100 million. Okay, lawyers don't always do that kind of due diligence uh, for that type of transaction. The reason why most law firm mergers do work is because we are slower. We're a little more deliberate. Just what you talked about before, you said, yeah, you need a committee. Do you can you imagine? We, so our, my firm had 170 lawyers, had been around 180 years. I had, I think, six lawyers. All right. They probably diligenced that for 12 to 18 months. And there was a, in a series of conversations, right? Um, I met with everyone, you know, and they asked every question. And I'm sure they still found some surprises, right? Um, but they also structured the deal in such a way that, you know, if we did half of what we thought we could do, it would be fine. And I'd like to think we were actually ended up being especially accretive to value. Um, but so... The, same things that people complain about at law firms, the slowness, the committees, all that, actually inure to their benefit when it comes to doing mergers. The, big, the other mergers that don't always work are the 500-lawyer firm merging with the other 500-lawyer firm or the transatlantic mergers. Those are just tough. So what was sort of the biggest adjustment for you in that merger? Immediately following the merger... The, the big obviously I knew you know working with headquarters and getting getting things like IT and marketing um, I, I guess you know I will say I I was a little surprised that our old shop was as far ahead I didn't realize how far ahead we were you know that the, being able to make decisions especially on marketing I mean you remember our firm from the old days we were you know for a very small firm you know a lot of people knew us um, and you can't do that necessarily so it, it, some things that I thought were going to be step-ups were more lateral. The other thing was that the biggest difference was when I came to the firm, the first question somebody asked me was, how many people do you need to hire here in Albany? And I felt like that wasn't the question. I said, well, I don't know. How many other, like, we have 170 lawyers. How do we, how can I traffic that work the right way? Which started a discussion, and based on that, the firm did a strategic restructuring where we restructured the firm based on practice groups, not based on geography. So, that had an immediate impact on me. Um, and then the other part was, it was, as you would guess, it's a little different when you're, you're just not the person making the decisions. You know, you know, you say, all right, this is what we're going to do. And then you think, well, all right, I got to get somebody's permission or at least tell somebody we're doing this. Right, right. Well, I think it's a, I think it's a good indicator of, of the success of the merger because you're still here. <laughs> How many years later? Right. Uh, 12 years later, 12 still years here, later, still profitable. Right? Um, and, uh, 
the um, the Albany office has really become a big part of the firm. Uh, you can't see it now, but um, there there's people here from one of our other offices almost certainly every week. Uh, I won't say every day, but you know Albany's a big part of the state, and uh, you know we we have a strong presence and, and also a place for people to hang their hat. Right. I will say. The ego part, at the time I was married and had two young kids, so I knew that I was constantly at home, I was constantly being told, you know, you're not that special, okay? You know, like, yeah, I was kept very humble at home, which, which was very helpful. You know how it is, you know, kids will put you in your place pretty well. And so I was willing to accept that in the context of the firm. Uh, I think on the tech side, I think even now we see lots of tech entrepreneurs who have made their living being mavericks and just cannot make that management style work. Um, and they're brilliant people and great businessmen, you know, but we see, you know, Zuckerberg's had, had his issues, you know, Elon Musk, right? Right. Uh, yeah, just right. Uh, because it's kind of like the Greek tragedies, right? The very thing that made them great is sometimes the thing that, that right. delays their movement to the next level. Yeah, and there's plenty of mergers or acquisitions that we've seen where the Entrepreneurs who started the company that got acquired uh, stay there for exactly the length of their employment agreement, right. and the next day they're gone. Yeah, right? I kind of—that was one thing I kind of wondered. I, I always—I uh, still do from time to time. I always wondered, you know, well, okay, it's been two years, you know, and, and we worked really hard. I will say we worked very hard to assimilate the Albany office into the firm. Um, we did our filing the same way. We did all our our reporting the same. Just to make sure that however headquarters was doing things to the extent possible, we would do that. And so, you know, with the idea being that basically anybody could run the office, right? And, and you know, we have some terrific lawyers here who uh, are also terrific business people. So I, I was a little surprised when after a year or two, you know, they didn't come and say, hey, Rich, it's been great. But there's new challenges. And I think in law firms, there's a big, there's a big emphasis on kind of institutional knowledge and, you know, remembering what we did wrong in the past. And I think that's why sometimes you see, you know, people staying on longer than you would think. So uh, let's switch gears a little bit. You, I think you mentioned this word earlier that uh, when you joined that first firm, right, you, you right. joined the startup, yep. that that person was sort of your mentor. Yep. So what role have mentors played in your sort of growth? A tremendous role. And that's one good thing. I, I, I get asked this a lot because I do a lot of work uh, in Silicon Valley, as, as you would guess, and I, I travel there a lot. Um, and people say, well, you know, what's, what's the big difference? You know, how, how could a, a place like upstate New York, you know, compete with Silicon Valley, you know, California? Um, and in many ways it can. You know, we don't have the money and we don't have, you know, some of the, those huge companies. But it's an old area. I, I said that before. And there's a real emphasis on mentoring. There's a real emphasis on kind of older established people helping out younger people. And I ran into a lot of those people and over and, and who, were, who were helpful and I had two other real big advantages. One of them was I was doing startup work and I was doing business work. So my clients and my prospective clients were the smartest people I knew. They had great perspectives and I had no problem asking them for advice uh, and, and you know getting their perspectives. And the other thing that happened over the course of the last 30, 35 years is that mentoring has become both upstream and downstream. So... You don't have to. You don't have to be me, right? You don't have to be the sixty-year-old guy, you know, lecturing to the twenty-five-year-old. You could learn stuff from the twenty-five-year-old, and you can learn stuff from your peers. It's a two-way street. Yes, yeah. I have relied a lot on advice that I've gotten both from peers, from clients, 
from people younger than me, as well as, you know, your traditional mentors, you know, kind of the, the older, usually the, the older guy who, you know, gives you some advice. And culturally, is there a difference in sort of how mentorship works in Silicon Valley versus other parts of the country like here? I don't know that I'm, I'm plugged in enough to know, you know, internally. I think there is. I, I think that, and, and it's both good and bad. I think here mentorship, mentorship uh, certainly here in upstate New York, is a little bit more kind of social. Uh, I think some of the mentoring is, uh, it's not just business. It's, you know, here's how you should comport yourself and, you know, here's how you should deal with adversity. Um, what I've seen in Sil- Silicon Valley is it's more, it's a little more direct uh, and it's more kind of business-based. You know, we need you to do this kind of or else. And it could be, you know, the pace is faster uh, and there's more of a expectation of success. I wish we had a little bit more of that here. But I, I do like the fact that people are, are trying to help you kind of holistically here. Right, right. I, I don't know. Have you seen that? Is that something that, that, that you see, you know, kind of at your level, like when you're giving advice to somebody? Part of your advice is, you know, here's what you should do with the company, but you're going to drive yourself nuts if you keep doing this. You see people doing that? Yeah, I, I think about it in terms of, I think, the people who do mentorship, at least my experience in this region of the country, and I think this is generally true in sort of second-tier markets, right? I think of yep, you know Austin sure. and yep. and the Valley and New York City as as the first-tier markets, and we're sort of in a second-tier market. Right. I think it ebbs and flows because I think there's there's a small handful of key individuals that sort of do it and drive it, and then others join in, and as those key individuals move on, right. Right. Then there's sort of like an ebb in sort of until until some new individuals sort of rise to the occasion uh, to kind of lead that mentorship effort in, a, in sort of a, a semi organized manner, I'll call it. Right. And that's well said. And, and whereas in an area like Silicon Valley, there's just a constant flow. There's just a constant. Right. flow. Yeah. Right. Uh, right. So I, I, but I think that that's what I think the difference is. I think mentorship is really important. I think I know it's a cliche. I think it helps the mentor as much or more than the mentee, um, because um, many times I have given somebody advice and then a week later I've been in a similar situation. I'm like, well, why was it okay for them to be patient with that employee? And you know, you just want to do this, right. you know. Right. Um, so I, I think that's a big part of it. I think that's I think that's one of the strengths of our region, actually. I've said that before, and I, I really think that's true. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Switching gears one more time here. So you run, now you're in a pretty good-sized law firm, but it's still a small to medium-sized law firm. Sure. It's sort of it's a, overall it's a, yeah. space. Yeah, right? It's not one of the big five. Or big oh, correct, 10, right? correct. You probably get involved in hiring individuals. Yes. I can imagine. So like any small business, each hire you make is important. Right. Because it's not like you have a 5000 person firm and you're hiring person 5001. Right. Right. (laughs) Right? You're each one is each each hire you make, each offer you make, each new person you bring on board is really, really important and key. So how do you think about hiring? Well, this is and this is not just in my law firm. I think there is. A couple of things going on in law firm hiring that, that makes it difficult. Uh, there's, there's some things going on culturally, um, and one of them is what we talked about before. Some people, some people want to hire to fill a need, okay? You know, we need somebody in litigation, we need, you know, and it's always the same thing. We need a third to seventh year associate, but other people say, no, I just want the best player on the board. You know, I used that before. And, and, and when we're hiring first year associates, because, you know, there's, you know, those are 
highly sought after people from law schools who have done very well. We just look for the best people. As you get into more lateral people, people who are coming from somewhere else, that's where you have the tension. Uh, I think if a person becomes available, you grab them. Other people say, no, I want to be able to fill you know, 40 hours a week of that person's work. And a lot of law firms look at that. So that, that's one challenge. Okay, I also will say a firm our size, we're not a huge firm, but and everybody would probably uh, be upset if I said this. Yeah, we, could pro- we can afford to make a mistake here and there. You know, we, we understand that things happen. Uh, so we have a little bit of leeway and we have a little bit more patience, I think. But the other problem that we and other law firms are having and they have not reconciled it is we're right in the crosshairs of this whole generational tension between, you know, a tra- we're a very traditional industry, right? We expect people to come. We pay you a ton of money. You work for us for you know ten years. You become a partner. You work for us for another forty years. You retire. Right. Your name goes on the front. Whatever. Um, and that's just not this generation. You know, this generation looks like a guy like me. I basically, when you think about it, I got one job. Right. I still have the same phone number, the same work phone number as I did. You know, in on August one of nineteen eighty five. Uh-huh. Okay. And no, it wasn't like Murray Hill 7 or something like that. It was, <laughs> you know, it's a real number. But, um, but they look at somebody like me and say, wow, this guy just couldn't, what, he just couldn't get another gig? And law firms will look at somebody and say, oh, this person's had, you know, three jobs in seven years. You know, why? And that person will say, why, what do you mean, why? Why would I stay in the same place for 10 years? Law firms have still not reconciled that. Um, I don't know if there is a reconciliation. I personally think that law firms whether it's mine or any other, have got to start getting used to the idea that, you know, the day, you know, 50 years in the gold watch, you know, in our profession, that might not be the model anymore. That is not the model anymore, period. Um, So you have to start getting, me personally, I hire a really smart person. I train them really well. I get three years out of them. They move on somewhere else. Great. Okay. Uh, First of all, I just think knowing smart people is always going to inure to your benefit. Um, if they want to stay, love to have them. But I don't want to try and shoehorn them into a situation that may be 20 or 30 years past its prime. And, and I think that's, that's the biggest problem with law firms. Yeah, and I think corporate America has, has reconciled that to a trying. large part. Yeah, yeah, right? yes. Uh, and and they, have, they have realized that most folks are not going to work for your company for their whole life. Right. right? And it is three to five years and they're going to move on. And, and, and they may be back. And, and they they, back. they right. often are back, and, that's right. and and that's that's the other thing, you know. Uh, they may be back, or in, in my in, in my world, okay, maybe this person won't come back to your law firm, but maybe they'll be in house somewhere, or maybe they'll actually be in a non legal job somewhere. Right. Uh, so, how much of that uh, I'll use the word resistance to this change? Do you think comes from uh, the management structure? Right? It's a partnership, right? Your yeah. longevity is valued. In a, law, in a law firm, right? And, and in corporate America in the 50s and 60s and 70s, longevity was valued, right? right? It was very seniority-based. Right. Right. It, it seems to me that in partnerships, sometimes you have that. I see it in venture firms, right? Guy starts a venture firm and he's there his whole career, right? There's not a lot of movement, particularly once you get sort of the partner level, right? right. I mean, there may be a couple of partners who leave and start their own, but it's, it's not common for a partner from one firm to go be a partner in another firm. It happens, but it's not common. Right. And, and law firms have that problem more than most because, um, first of all, yes, they're always, most law firms of our size and larger, 
they understand you can't have 200 or, you know, what do we have, 70 partners. You know, uh, we certainly keep people in the loop, obviously, but you, you can't have, just like any any business, you can't have 70 people voting on, on you know, everything, you know, um, kind of shows why the House of Representatives, you know, doesn't, doesn't work out that well, right? Um, but... The way they tried to solve it in the House of Representatives was they used to have they used to really have a, a subcommittee structure that really had a lot of weight, you know. Now that's going away a little bit. We do the same thing. We, um, you know, we have a governing committee, uh, and and most law firms have a similar thing. But you know, and I've brought this up before, the governing committee is you know made up of you know lawyers that work partners that work for us. I don't know many other law firms, uh, certainly of our size, that for example have outside directors. And, and you and I talked about this right. a long time ago. And I, the, the, uh, the idea of bringing in clients, or we have this huge resource of you know we a firm like ours. We have huge clients, really smart people, um, and I would I would not mind letting them know a little bit about us so that they could get some advice. But so you have no independent directors. I'll call it that way. And there is a an emphasis on democracy. Uh, which is nice, but is you know inherently inefficient, right? Um, and the other problem you have in law firms is most of the people are really articulate, really good at making a point, you know, really good arguers. Yes, you know, and uh, and so you're you're dealing with all those people, right? Um, and so it, it becomes incumbent upon the managing partner and the governing committee, and the governing committee, you know, is a is a small subgroup, and you know the physical makeup of that committee made determine where a law firm is going. But yeah, I'd love to see people doing more on independent. I'd like, uh, you know, independent directors. I'd like to see law firms um, spending spending more time and money getting, you know, outside people. Like, for example, the, the highest ranked civilian in our firm, you know, is our COO. Our, our, and, uh, he's a financial guy and he's been with the firm for quite a long time. Um, he's a non-lawyer, but he's a terrific business person. I think uh, firms should be spending more time doing that. I think firms should be picking up more of the corporate model than they do. But it's still, it's you know, it's traditional. I mean, our system of law is a thousand years old. Yes. And, you know, it's, um, and you could argue and, and say that, well, the tradition, you know, uh, preserves those people, those older people at the top. Right. It's a similar model, right, in, in, an, in an investment space. Sure. Uh, partnerships. And although there's been a couple big that have converted, right? I mean, Goldman has sort of changed the model. Right, but Goldman certainly changed their ownership model, but I, I don't know that Goldman or, or any of them, BlackRock or whoever yeah. else, you know, I, I don't know that any of them have changed who's the really making, yeah, who, who's really making the decisions right. at the governance level. Right. Um, so yeah. it's interesting, right? So a, a young company comes to you and part of the advice you give them is get, in a, get an advisory board or get a board of directors, Absolutely. outside directors. Right. But we, but we don't do that here, right? Um, now I will say on on a um, ad hoc basis, I'm not the only guy with really smart clients. You know, we get a lot of a lot of ideas do filter uh, sure. th through. And also, um, one nice thing about you know having made it to my age in this career is, I don't have any clients I don't like. <laughs> you know, uh, I I you know I, I my clients are friends and and uh, are people who yeah I. I I can sit down with and have a beer with and talk business and maybe we won't be talking specifically about the firm, but about business trends and I'll learn something. Right. And, and, you know, cause like you, I'm always thinking about how does this apply to my business or my institution? Uh, and right. yeah. So uh, you see lots of startups. Yeah. Right. You see lots of startups, lots of small, small companies and businesses. 
So if you had to give three pieces of advice, so what, what are the three words of wisdom from Rich Honan to, to small entrepreneurial businesses? Uh, one, if you've been doing this for two years and you're not getting any traction, it's time to do something else, okay? And I think I'm being a little generous with the two years, okay? So what do you mean by traction? Um, you know, if you're not getting anywhere, if you're not, if you haven't made your product, if you're not, or made significant I understand when you're talking about technology companies, for example. I mean, if you're if you're you know trying to put field effect transistors on chips, okay, you need a little need a little time to do that, or or be dope fiber amplifiers or whatever. But uh, if you're not making significant progress either in hitting benchmarks or making money, okay, within say two years, I think you need to rethink. You know, and and like I say, I'm for the benefit of this, I'm being a little generous. I think with the two years, um, I think. I said this the other day in an article. I, we need to start demanding successes, not just attempts. You know, so that, that's the first thing. The other thing is, I would say, um, be as brutally honest with yourself as you can. And if you can't be, find somebody, a friend, a lawyer, somebody who will be brutally honest to your face. You know, remember, your friends are the ones who tell you when, you know, your fly is open, right? Um, and, uh, it's that's hard with entrepreneurs because they've been so successful at bucking the trend, right? I mean, the whole reason they have this company is they thought of something that's hopefully disruptive, right? So that that's a hard line to walk. And third thing, I was just say, you know, listen, you know, be prepared to listen to anyone's advice. You know, you know, take people's, pick your people well, take your advice, and and at the same time, have the courage of your own convictions. You know, I, I just I wrote an email to someone locally. Um, uh, whose uh, business was you know, having some ups and downs. And I said, look, there's a reason why you were successful in the first place. You know, continue to have, to have confidence in that reason. Yeah, that's great advice. That's great advice. So is there anything else uh, I should have asked you or any other points you want to make before we wrap this up? No, I think that um, I think there's still an important role for lawyers in society. I know, you know, both my kids who are in college uh, have said, you know, should I go to law school? And I, I, and I tell them no. I tell people, unless you actually want to be a lawyer, don't go to law school. Um, but I, I think there's still an important role for lawyers. Uh, I understand that people are upset that we've created a society so complex that you have to hire somebody to tell you what the rules of life are. Um, but there's never been a more important time to be an advisor, you know, uh, whether it's a lawyer or a, a mentor. Um, and uh, I think the other thing is you need to listen to other people to a point. But when you when you feel something that you think is the right way to go, you know, go that way. Perfect. Thanks, Rich. It was great. Thank great, you. Great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Me too. Thanks. Bela, that was a great interview. What an interesting person, an interesting story. What did you particularly find interesting about the path that Rich has taken over the course of his career? So, you know, one of the things that I thought was was really neat was that he joined a basically a startup law firm and he didn't go the big corporate way. So he clearly has an entrepreneurial bias, just the fact that that he would do something like that. And it's really manifested itself in in his practice now. So he's really focused on startups and helping startups. So he has had that experience of, hey, I got to start a law firm. I got to go get some customers. And he's also had the experience of acquiring the firm. So he actually bought his partner out and, and then it was his firm. And then years later, he got acquired by Phillips Lytle, a much larger firm. 
So he's got this great depth and breadth of experience in sort of all of the aspects that an entrepreneur or a founder of business may experience. And he's not only seen that through the people that he provides advice for and counsel for, but he's also experienced it personally. So I think that's like a great, great example of a real valuable person that if you're an entrepreneur, you're going to want to seek out because you're going to want to hook up with someone like Rich, whether it be on the law side or the accounting side or the marketing side or whatever, where this notion of having some of that entrepreneurial experience and entrepreneurial bias is really, really important. Bela, couldn't agree more, but in your expertise and your experience, where does somebody who doesn't have a lot of experience in the startup world find people like Rich to connect with? I mean, I know networking is important and LinkedIn and all these things, but in terms of, of actually meeting somebody like this, how would maybe one of our listeners who wants to do something different uh, and, and start a business, how would they find people like Rich? So this is where, you know, the tried and true method of networking is is really important. One has to remember that in all of these kind of service industries, as sometimes they're called, whether it be legal or marketing or accounting, there are people who are subspecialist. And the starting of a business and the growing of a young entrepreneurial business is a subspecialty in all of these discipline areas. So I think you have to network. You have to go to the Chamber of Commerce. You have to go to economic development organizations. Uh, you have to you have to hang out at places where other small companies hang out, and you have to talk to the people who have started them and and are running them, and saying who do you use for a law firm, who do you use for accounting firm, and I bet you if you go to a chamber of commerce meeting or a economic development meeting or gathering, the same name, the same two or three names are going to pop up all of the time, and that's a great great way of figuring this out. They're not, you're not going to find them in the yellow pages. You're, you, you may find them on the internet, and that may be a place to start. But I think this is where personal references are really, really important. Yeah, the people that I know that do this don't have this listed on their website. They don't say, I'm the law firm to help you start a business, right? It just doesn't, it's not something they advertise. Um, and, you know, you mentioned this earlier when we were talking about this before. This is not going to be the lawyer um, that your neighbor used to, to file her divorce or this is not going to be the lawyer used to close on your house or this is not the lawyer that you're going to use to get out of your 16 traffic tickets that you may have gotten because you're driving too fast. I mean, this is a really a specialized field and only entrepreneurs are probably going to know who these people are. Um, so I think it is a big word of mouth kind of phenomenon. But yeah, I mean, there's always events for entrepreneurs and there's always events where there's angel investors. Every city has these and you have to connect into that and go to these things. They'll be there a lot of the times um, and you'll get to know them. You know, it, it reminds me of this this story that I, I was talking once to an entrepreneur. We were actually talking about this subject of finding um, a lawyer and an accountant. I was saying, so, you know, who are you using for an attorney? And he said, oh, my uncle, you know, he does. Uh, and I said, great. And what does your uncle do? Oh, he does house closings. He does divorces. He does traffic tickets. You know, he's sort of a general purpose attorney. And and I said, well, let's say someone in your family, you know, was really sick, had some had some pretty serious illness. Wouldn't you want to go to some 
some physician that specialized in that, or at least a hospital that had a lot of physicians that specialized in that. And he goes, oh, yeah, of course, that's what I would do, right? Because I want nothing but the best. And I said, look, this is identical to that, <laughs> right? This is no different. Um, there are subspecialties in these areas, and it's something that you you should think about. And it, it was interesting to me how many people don't think of business services in the same way that they may think about their own personal health who are, you know, some people are really invested in their own health and, and they're seeking out the best doctors um, that they can find, particularly if they have something out of the ordinary. And they will talk to a hundred people and ask their friends, you know, who do all sorts of uh, research and, and networking to try to find out who the best physicians in their region are, are for a particular illness. But they don't make that same investment when it comes to their business. Another good analogy, Bela, is... If you want to climb Mount McKinley or you want to climb Kilimanjaro, you're not going to pay the guy who works at Dick's who sold you the hiking shoes, right, at Dick's Sporting Goods to take you up. You want to hire a guide that's experienced climbing these mountains that you're going to climb. And I think that in some ways, at least from my entrepreneurial experiences, sometimes it does feel like climbing a mountain, right? And you're going hand over hand and it's uncomfortable and the air is thin and you're in these new surroundings and you have to trust these people around you. Um, that you don't really know. And yeah, that's when you need a really good guide. And I kind of think about Rich as one of these guides that can take you up the mountain safely and securely um, and with a minimum of stress and a minimum of wasted resources. Um, so yeah, I think this is a, a great example for our listeners. What about what about some of his philosophies? I thought a couple of his philosophies were really interesting and and to me resonated. What was your sense on kind of Rich's philosophy towards business? So I thought one that really struck out at me was this notion of being brutally honest. I think that oftentimes we are not honest either with ourselves uh, or with people that we interact with. And I think one of the things that Rich said was he views it as part of his responsibility to say, you know, are you sure you want to do that? Because if you do that, here are potential consequences uh, and it may not be the very best path for you to go. Uh, even though he may risk upsetting his client, right? So he's in this unique position where you're paying him for his services. And there are those who will always say yes to what you ask. And uh, because they, they don't want to, they don't want to piss you off, so to speak. Uh, but I think Rich's philosophy of saying, hey, you know what? It's really important as part of my responsibility of being honest with my clients and with my customers uh, I, that really struck out at me. Agreed. And it's a it's a rare skill and it's a skill that people can develop over time. Um, I've seen it develop in people, the ability to be brutally honest. You can do it in a kind way. You don't need to call people names or to 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 insult people, but you can literally call out the flaws um, of a business plan or of a concept uh, of a product or as a service as you see it. Um, but I'll tell you here in Germany, if you're if you're a listener in the U.S., like most of our listeners are here in Germany, culturally, people are brutally honest. They are very direct. They don't beat around the bush. They don't kiss your butt. They say, here's the three things that I, I, I am questioning about your idea. Here's the three reasons why I think it won't work. Um, here's a problem with your logic. 
I question this data. They will be very, very direct with you. You have to have thick skin here. So if you're if you're in the U.S. and you need a little bit of brutally honesty, a brutal honesty, come on over to Germany and I can hook you up with lots of my students who will be very direct and honest with you. Um, and a lot of the business people that I've worked with so far as well are that way. So it's uh, uh, there's definitely a culture in the U.S. towards, hey, let me tell you the three things that were great at what you did and maybe you could do this better. Um, it's the total opposite here. It's like, here's the three things that I found uh, incorrect about your presentation. Um, and maybe here's one thing that was okay, <laughs> you know? So it's just the opposite and it's a, it's a cultural difference. Yeah. Interesting. Was there anything else that you uh, thought that was interesting there, Mike? No, this was, this was great. I thought, you know, I guess the, the, the one last piece that I really liked was his, his uh, emphasis on humility and being humble. Um, and I've really seen a pattern, um, of this is that, I think that some of the examples he threw out, you know, Elon Musk is in the news right now and, and Zuckerberg, um, that you have to have this hubris, um, but you don't. If you listen to any of the other podcasts and, and Rich is right in, in line with this is um, you can have confidence in your own abilities, um, but you can be humble and appreciative um, and hang out with other kind and humble people and be a really effective entrepreneur. Um, and I think sometimes the press miscategorizes or the media miscategorizes this and only focuses on the people who are jerks. Um, but I think you can speak to this as well. I think we both, we, we both know jerks that are entrepreneurs, but we know plenty of entrepreneurs and plenty of people who are followed, who have followed their own path, who are humble and kind uh, and generous. And I think it's important that people realize that, that being a jerk is not the, the path to success. Um, I think it's actually the exception rather than the rule. Agreed. Agreed very strongly. And I think this was a great example of one of the things we're trying to accomplish in this podcast, and that is to have guests who come from a wide spectrum of entrepreneurial endeavors. And oftentimes we do not think of a law firm as being entrepreneurial. In this case, it very much is. So with that, I think we'll wrap it up. Thanks for listening. We really appreciate getting your comments uh, at our email address, which is bela.and.mike at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.